The year is 1996. President Bill Clinton signs welfare reform into law, signaling a major change in the way the federal government would now care for poor people in America. Republicans who controlled both houses of Congress for the first time in four decades cut the budget for the National Endowment for the Arts by 40%, bringing it to its lowest level in 20 years. The number of new AIDS cases diagnosed in the U.S. declines for the first time since the beginning of that epidemic. And AIDS is no longer the leading cause of death for Americans ages 25 to 44, although it remains the primary cause for African Americans in that age group. And in that year of 1996, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama went to Jonathan Larson's Rent a groundbreaking musical that moved the setting of Puccini's opera La Boheme from the Bohemian quarters of Paris in the 1830s to the community of struggling artists who lived on New York's Lower East Side in the 1980s. My name is Jan Simpson. Welcome to All the Drama, a podcast about the plays and musicals that have won American theater's highest accolade, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. The story of Jonathan Larson's tragic death following the final dress rehearsal of Rent has become part of theatrical lore. And there are some who have wondered if the show would have gotten the prize had he lived. My friend Richard Kornberg was the press rep for that original production of the show that opened at New York Theatre Workshop. And he's heard that question before. But he still believes that Rent won on its own merits and might have been an even stronger contender had Larson not died. It's a really tough question to ask. Every year, as you know, they change the people that are on the jury. Traditionally, um, important critics. And if you happen to be an important critic... You, you see a whole plethora of shows every year. And so you don't just award uh, something because something is in the news. You award something because there's talent and taste behind it. Also, if Jonathan lived, the show might have been even better. What I mean by that is, Jonathan died after the dress rehearsal. Well, whereas the show could be fine-tuned in the preview period, but the creative genius that Jonathan was wasn't there to create new new songs. So you know, one doesn't know if he lived how much even stronger Rent might have been. Jonathan Larson was born on February 4th. 1960, to Nanette and Alan Larson, who owned a marketing business. Jonathan and his older sister, Julie, grew up in the New York City suburb of White Plains, where he played piano and tuba and performed in school plays, usually in leading roles. Jonathan won a four-year scholarship to the conservatory at Adelphi University on Long Island, 
There he majored in acting, but also began writing musicals for the school cabarets that featured student work. Like most kids his age, he loved rock music, but he also loved Broadway musicals, particularly the work of Stephen Sondheim. In fact, Larson was such a Sondheim fan that while he was still in college, he wrote the older composer a letter. Sondheim wrote back. And that began the mentor-protege relationship between them that would continue until Larson's death. By the time he graduated in 1982, Larson had entirely shifted his focus from acting to composing and had written about 10 shows. One, a satire about the religious right, had a four-week showcase run in a small theater on 42nd Street after he graduated. And it won him and his co-writer an award from the music composer's organization, ASCAP. The next year, Larson started working on a musical adaptation of George Orwell's dystopian novel, 1984. But when the Orwell estate refused to give him the stage rights to the book, he switched to a futuristic story of his own and called the show Superbia. With a little help from Sondheim, that score won a Richard Rogers grant for further development, and Superbia got a stage reading at Playwrights Horizons. A close friend of Larson's later produced a rock concert version at the Village Gate. But Larson couldn't find anyone willing to do a full production of the show. Convinced that no one wanted to do Superbia because it had a large cast, Larson began working on a musical monologue based on his own life as an artist, trying to hold on to his creative dreams even as friends gave up on theirs and started taking straight jobs. He called the show 3090 because he would be turning 30 in 1990. A little later, after his birthday, he renamed it Boho Days, and finally titled it Tick, Tick, Boom. All during that time, Larson supported himself with a day job as a waiter at the Moondance Diner on 6th Avenue near Canal Street. He organized his schedule to work on weekends, which gave him enough money to cover his rent and other basics and enough time during the rest of the week for his real work. Although he resisted writing jingles for commercials, which would have earned him more money, he did occasionally pick up a little extra by writing songs on the side for children's shows, including for Sesame Street. But Larson remained laser-focused on creating musicals that, as he later said, would, quote, bring musical theater to the MTV generation, end quote. His fortunes began to turn in 1989 when he was introduced to Billy Aronson, a playwright who was looking for a composer to work with him on his idea about turning Puccini's 1896 opera La Boheme into a musical comedy about yuppies moving into New York's Upper West Side. Larson liked the idea of using La Boheme as the scaffolding for his show, but he persuaded Aronson to move the setting downtown, where he thought that neighborhood's residents had more in common with the artists in Puccini's opera. He also wanted to move the show in a more serious direction. 
The Larson's first years in New York had coincided with the spread of AIDS, which had ravaged the city's artistic community, killing hundreds of young people in their prime, including several of Larson's closest friends. And he thought that should be part of the show as well. As their visions continued to separate, Larson asked Aronson if he could develop the show on his own. By that time, they had written three songs together, including the love duet, I Should Tell You. So they agreed that Larson would see what he could do with the rest of the idea, and that Aronson would get credit for the original concept and the lyrics of the three songs, if anything ever came of the show. Larson worked on it for the next seven years. Midway through, in 1993, he persuaded New York Theatre Workshop to do a workshop production of what he was now calling Rent. Everyone liked the music, but they thought the book needed work. At first, Larson refused to collaborate with another book writer, but when the workshop hired Michael Greif to direct a full production, Larson reluctantly agreed to work with a dramaturg who helped him streamline the narrative. In Larson's telling of the story, Puccini's painter Marcello and poet Rodolfo become a filmmaker named Mark and a musician named Roger. As Run opens, they're trying to figure out how to stay warm in the cold water flat they share and how to come up with the rent money they owe before they're evicted. Their circle of friends, lovers, and former lovers include Benny, their one-time roommate who is now their landlord, Collins, a gay professor and his girlfriend, Angel, a trans woman, both of whom have AIDS. Maureen, Mark's ex, who has left him for a female lawyer named Joanne. And Mimi, an HIV-positive stripper who becomes Roger's love interest. The entire creative team agreed that the show should be cast largely with unknowns and that the most important criteria was that those actors be able to really sing its rock score. Anthony Rapp, who had participated in the original workshop, was an experienced Broadway and screen actor, but Adam Pascal, who played Roger, was a real rock singer. And Edina Menzel, who played the wife, who had left Roger for a woman, just as one of Larson's girlfriends had done him, had been earning a part of her living singing at bar mitzvahs. They were all devastated when they got the news of Larson's death. He had been suffering severe chest pains, dizziness, and shortness of breath for several days before their scheduled opening. But he had gone to the emergency room at Cabrini Medical Center, where a doctor said he was probably just suffering from food poisoning. When the symptoms continued a few days later, Larson went to St. Vincent's Hospital, where, after a chest X-ray, an electrocardiogram proved negative, the doctor suggested he might have the flu. Friends thought the symptoms had been brought on by the stress of getting ready for the show that it meant so much to him. But on January 25th, 1996, after the dress rehearsal, Larson went home and died. His roommate came home and found him lying on their kitchen floor with the tea kettle still burning on the stove. An autopsy would later reveal that he had died of a tear inside his aorta, the main artery carrying blood from the heart to all other organs. 
There was talk of canceling the following night's performance, but the decision was made to go ahead with a simple reading for family and friends, with the cast dressed in street clothes and sitting at a table on stage. But by the end of the first act, the cast was so wrapped up in the show and its songs that they performed the second act in full. Word of mouth about Rent traveled quickly, aided by an article in the New York Times, which featured an interview Larson gave just a few hours before he died. The show sold out quickly, but I was lucky enough to see it there and to be wowed by it like everyone else. It moved to Broadway just four months later, where it won the Tony for Best Musical, Best Score, and Best Book, and it became only the seventh musical to win the Pulitzer Prize. Rent ran on Broadway for 12 years and 5,123 performances, turning its cast of unknowns into stars and over the years providing jobs for countless others. The show has since played all over the world. A movie was released in 2005 with much of the original cast, but they had perhaps aged out of their roles. The movie cost $40 million to make, but only grossed $32 million. An off-Broadway revival at New World Stages in 2011 didn't fare so well either, running just a year. Still, Rent remains one of the most influential musicals ever written, and certainly an inspiration for such shows as Hamilton, Be More Chill, Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812, Dear Van Hansen, and even A Strange Loop. The Larson family remained devoted to the show and to Jonathan's memory. Remembering his struggles, they set up the Jonathan Larson Performing Arts Foundation to provide monetary grants and artistic residencies for upcoming musical theater composers and writers. Larson grant recipients over the years have included Dave Malloy, Shana Taub, and Michael R. Jackson. Attending the award ceremony every spring has been one of the highlights of the year for my husband and me. But it's still hard not to mourn what else Larson himself might have given us if he'd simply had more time. It is a great honor for me that Anthony Tomasini, the longtime classical music critic for the New York Times, who interviewed Larson for the paper just a few hours before he died, has agreed to talk with me about that final interview and about Larson's legacy. But first, I need to apologize in advance for some of the audio. There was construction going on in my building, and there were breaks in the connection between Tomasini and me as we talked. However, I've been able to edit around them, and I think the heart of what Tomasini had to say comes through clearly. Hello, Anthony Tomasini. Welcome to All the Drama. Hi, Jen. I'm delighted to be talking with you. I really want to talk with you about that final interview you did with Jonathan Larson. But first, I want to ask you a couple of general questions. And the first is, do you remember when you heard, you first heard that Rent had won the Pulitzer and what your thoughts were about it? Uh, yes. One of his friends called me and he was in tears. He was so excited. And um, I practically was also because, I, I mean, it's a very distinguished award, and I, 
have always especially been excited when they go for something a little bit edgier, a little bit stylistically ambitious. So I really was just delighted, both just as a lover of the arts that this piece won, but also personally for Jonathan and his family and his friends. I found out after I met him and after I worked on these articles that when in the worst years, he used to go around saying, uh, you watch someday I'm going to win a Tony Award. Someday, uh, you know, I'm going to have a musical on Broadway. Someday I'm going to have an interview in the New York Times. Mm. He would have been over the moon, as we uh, line from about the Pulitzer Prize. That was not even in his imagination, I think. And also his family and his friends were very grateful to me, to me forever because at least one of the things, the predictors that came through for him, one of the, you know, milestones that he was hoping for that before he died, I showed up from the New York Times to do to do an interview with him. So it was a, a real sign that the kind of success he dreamt of might come to him. But the Pulitzer would have every he would have flipped out, of course, and and I think all of us did on his behalf. This is a tough question, but do you think the show would have won if he had lived? That is a very tough question, and it's hard. You know, I've been asked that before. I I really, trying to be objective as a critic, I genuinely believe that the show is so strong, so distinctive, uh, so uh, modest in a way and ambitious in a way, you know, the way it blends musical theater elements and rock and pop. It's so personal. It was so timely. I really do think the show would have been a success had Jonathan lived. Jonathan's death definitely brought an enormous attention to Jonathan's life. Now, that would not have happened. You mm-hmm. know, uh, um, but it was very moving to hear the story of his life um, in conjunction with the, the success of this show. But I, I really do think the, the work would have prevailed and been very uh, considered and a, really an important contribution. But it's it's a tough question, you're right. It's probably hard to, you know, sort of flash back to being there at that dress rehearsal, but do you have any memories of when you first heard Rent? Yes, I heard it at that dress rehearsal. I am a musical theater fan, but I had, like many people, I really didn't know of Johnson Larson or his work. I was a classical music critic already at the Times, and although I wrote now and then about theater too, and I heard that this young musical theater composer had written a rock musical, as it was being described, that loosely riffs Puccini's La Boheme. Interestingly, Jonathan didn't find out until late after he'd begun. 1996 was the 100th anniversary of the premiere of La Boheme, Hmm. that this opera that's about bohemian life and uh, that was still speaking to a new generation of struggling artists. So I just, I talked to the theater editor and I went to the rehearsal to check it out. And the first time note I heard of any of Rent and of any of Jonathan's work really was the night. It was the dress rehearsal at the New York Theater Workshop for what was about to be a string of, I think, eight to 10 previews. Then it was going to open for a six week run. And I later found out that it was um, the, their first real run through in that space. I was really swept away by the story, by the music. I remember the first time I heard season 
of love with that, you know, op- that's played just the series of chords. Well, actually, I was thinking, I've got to get the, I've got to see what those notes are. And um, I remember thinking, without you, that beautiful song of uh, Roger and Mimi sing, I just thought, wow. I was really excited by it, but it was very, very shaky that night. I was pretty confident that they could get it together. But uh, What were some of the things that went wrong? Oh, you know, there was feedback from the amplification at times and uh, all sorts of and technical things that, you know, little things fell and stuff like that. But all the typical things that happen, you know, uh, that's why you have previews. The, pre- the run of previews was essentially going to be their rehearsal time, but, uh, but it, it really came through. Now, I know you've talked about this many times, but would you tell our listeners how you came to interview Jonathan uh, of the night that he died? It was almost eerie. It was almost like it was meant to be. I Obviously, I had arranged. I was going to write an, this production. So, of course, I had to go to the rehearsal. And then, of course, I had to interview Jonathan. And I was going to do it after the rehearsal. That was all arranged. But, you know, I didn't have to go that night. Maybe I'll go tomorrow. To the... So anyway, I went, and as I told you, I watched the show. And then it was chaos, of course, in the space after the performance with everybody running around. Then so the only quiet place we could find to talk was the tiny ticket in there and shut the door, and we talked. And the first thing I told him was how much I liked the show and how, you know, that congratulates, I congratulated him. And it was incredibly... Um, powerful for him but i think but we talked in great deal about the specifics of it not just who the characters were and the parallels with bohem but his ambition to try to do something very difficult which was to meld the forms of musical theater song which is not easy to do he talked about how personal the work he wound up creating was and that presented in various characters. And, and then he said two things that got widely shared the whole interview at the time, but I put out some quotes from it and I put some quotes into my article. And one was, you know, he had just quit his job for 10 years as a waiter at the Moondance Diner. And he, he said, quote, that other commissions are coming in as a composer. It's Jan. The line faded out as Tony was reading Jonathan's quote, and it's such an important and poignant one that I want to read it for you. Here's what Jonathan said to him. Quote, I'm happy to say that other commissions are coming up, and I think I may have life as a composer. End quote. Now, back to the conversation between Tony and me. Then the other thing he said, was talked about was his friends with Ace, that they were his inspiration at the time about how, um, you know, the struggles they were going through and what they were facing. And he said, there's another quote, it's not how many years you live, but how fulfilling the time you spend here is. Uh, uh, how long did you and he talk? I only taped about 30 minutes, talked probably for 45 minutes before I started taping. And we talked a little bit more afterwards and he was charming and interesting and then uh, we shook hands on the street and i went my way and he went his and then i found out later he went home and he collapsed on the floor and you you saw no signs of anything no no i i later found out that just he had been in the previous few days twice to emergency rooms including the night before uh, we, we talked and he did not 
mentioned this. Um, he seemed okay. He seemed tired, you know, as anybody would be in the midst of an intense run, you know, with all this pressure. He seemed a little tired and stressed, but uh, I thought I didn't, you know, nothing struck me about it. You did a, a second piece in which you talked to Jonathan's friends and and family, and you yeah. you later uh, appeared right. in uh, a documentary uh, about right. the making of Rent, and now you've graciously agreed to talk with me about it. What keeps you coming back to this story? Well, there are two things. One, as as I said, just as a lover of the arts, this is really, it's very important and very beautiful and personal and powerful, I think. But the other thing is that I, I know that as a Times critic, a review I write or a profile I do can really help, uh, can have a big influence on the career of an uh, emerging artist. And I understand that and I, I take that very responsibly. But it's true that I had an enormous influence on on Jonathan's work and bringing attention to him. And I felt I'm not bragging about that. I, I'm, I'm honored. I'm humbled, realized that I could have a real impact. I, as I said, I was humbled. I wanted to do it right. I wanted to be true to the story, true to his friends, true to Jonathan. And But I felt an enormous responsibility. And I knew it would not go away because interest in... Jonathan will always be here as it is right in this moment, you know, and, um, and I'm happy, you know, as long as I'm around, you know, to keep, um, keep going back to that story because it, it was incredibly powerful and meaningful to me. When I either talk to younger composers or read other interviews with them, many of them cite Jonathan as an inspiration and you were very much a part of helping to create their ability to learn from him and carry on his work. So I want to thank you for that. And I want to thank you for talking with us today about Jonathan and Rent and their legacy. It was my pleasure. Thank you for reaching out to me. And thank you for listening. I hope you'll come back next time and that you'll listen to all the other Broadway radio podcasts. And, if you aren't already doing so, that you'll consider making a contribution to support our work, which you can do at patreon.com slash broadwayradio.